of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and I am joined here today by the elected district attorney and former judge of Kaufman County, uh, Judge Wiley. How are you doing today, Judge? I'm doing well, Garrett. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining me on our little rainy day here in your your very nice brand new courthouse. I know. We're so excited. The (laughs) Kaufman County Justice Center was so necessary. We were in the old courthouse that was Wow, 60 years old at least plus, and it was built for a county a third of the size or half the size we have now. So we were running out of the building with people. Yeah, so you guys just got this this year, right? Yes. Well, I think to be exact, we finally moved over at the end of last year. And so I would say we started really working effectively in the beginning of this year. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's delays in building. But we're excited. We're in this beautiful conference room, and I'm so glad that you asked (laughs) me to join your podcast today. Well, thank you for joining. And um, we kind of start these things off with your story. What made you want to go into prosecution? You went to UT Law, and then um, from there, you ended up at the Dallas DA's office. So what made you want to go to prosecution? Well, it wasn't UT Law. They did not push prosecution (laughs) at UT it was business transactional law really was what uh, yeah. most of my colleagues went into i um i think the first inclination that i had a, i had an interest is you and currently y'all have so many more clinics than we do but 30 something years ago when i was in law school in austin in the late 80s beginning of the 90s they had a few clinics And one of the clinics that I did in my third year was a juvenile justice clinic. Up to that point, my summer internships and clerkships and things I'd done were with in-house corporate counsel and good money, and that was the plan. The uh, oil and gas firm that I worked for was here in Dallas, Mm -hmm. and they had offered me a job, and I was going to work for them. That was the plan. Took the bar, and I was just going to work for those guys. And the reason I remember that juvenile justice is that was the only time that I, that I wondered, is that really something that I want to do? Just go in a business transaction or for me specifically oil and gas and read oil leases all day and try to stay awake in the afternoon after lunch. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that because I had a business degree and I was interested in that area as well. But that clinic opened my eyes to juveniles the, the abilities, it was on the defense side, obviously in the clinic, and it was looking at these kids, the parents, trying to meet with them, and that was the first time I actually was in a criminal system, a quasi-criminal system, because it's juvenile. So when I graduated, took the bar, uh, waiting on results, I was in Dallas, I was living with some other women that went to law school with me, and the firm, I think the job, I was still off in the summer, because we had taken that bar, and I was gonna start, 
and a friend suggested to me that they were hiring at the Dallas DA's office. And I remember going, I've got a great job and we compared salaries and I realized that it wouldn't be for the money yeah. because the salary was um, much lower than what I was going to make doing corporate. But I right. think when I went to that downtown in Dallas at that time, it, they had built the new building in the 90s. So it was now the same current building that's there, the Frank Crowley. The atmosphere, the buzz, the people running in and out of court, it was it was crazy. Yeah. And I loved it. And I thought, maybe. And I, I got lucky then. I'm sure the process is much more complicated now. I interviewed with the first assistant, Norm Kinney. Those names are old names. <laughs> and a gentleman named the name of Mike Gillette. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I got called back and, and met the boss, Bill uh, John Vance, and I was offered a job. I think at the heart of it, I really wanted to help people. Yeah. A lot of people think helping people is being a defense attorney. And they, they have, the system works for the defense. But you can do more as a prosecutor seeking justice. Mm-hmm. The bad guys, we want to give them the violent people sentences that met out what they do. But there's a lot of other things that you can do. Right. So I, I actually think God put somebody in my path that was a prosecutor in Dallas. I was already wondering after I'd taken that clinic in my third year, is this really what I want to do? And I saw this, you know, mm-hmm. these kids and is, is this all it is about practicing law or can I really help people? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good way to help people as a prosecutor because you have control over the whole case. and You do. And so. people don't get that. Yeah. I mean, they think all prosecutors are just trying to rack time up. Yeah. And that's not what it's about. And I started out in the Dallas DA's office. And my career there was 12 years. I was really lucky. I, I, then, that time, Dallas was still growing. And, and it's still growing. Everybody's moving here to Texas in the south. But we moved pretty quickly. was a chief. Mm-hmm. worked in front of judges that were... To me, they were old, cranky judges, but they, their job was to teach you how to be a prosecutor. Yeah. And it, there was no political correctness or not telling people exactly what you thought, and they did, um, in court, mm-hmm. in front of juries. So yeah. you learn not to make mistakes <laughs> and do the law incorrectly or not be prepared. And then I moved up to, um, we talked a little before we started the podcast of our interest and we shared yeah. that child abuse interest. Yeah. So after right at a year when I was going into felony, I was approached about doing child abuse cases. Mm-hmm. Um, had an interest, it was eye opening. Yeah. If you can imagine then child abuse was really starting to take off during that time frame. Now we're into the not mid nineties but early nineties and okay. moving on and it was just it was amazing. We just had opened up the CAC in Dallas and this concept of why this poor child has to be interviewed several times yeah. and going over to the new Dallas CAC on Swiss and it was exciting stuff and we were really making differences and I did that and then I was asked to supervise a unit moving out of child abuse doing CPS I'm like that's not any fun that's not real criminal work right but I learned a lot and so and then I cycled through that juvenile a little bit. 
So I took the grand tour in the Dallas yeah. office. I started <laughs> out misdemeanor. <laughs> I went to felony. I did child abuse. Then I came back through the CPS juvenile. And so I think it had me well-rounded. And I lived at home in Kaufman County raising my kids that I decided to run for judge in Kaufman County Court at Law. And guess what? The jurisdiction had misdemeanor, felony, did a lot of the child abuse cases, the district courts oh. would kick them down, juvenile, presiding judge for juvenile, <laughs> and guess what? CPS, presiding judge. So sometimes you wonder why you do things, and then when that opportunity came, yeah. my resume fit it perfectly. Yeah, and that's so great. That's what I did. I ran for judge, and I won. Mm -hmm. And I sat on the bench for 10 years doing all those things I love to do. Wow. That's cool. It is. It was yeah. crazy. I, I mean, I really didn't understand how or why I moved to the office. was sort of disappointed at different times. Mm -hmm. But usually when your boss asks you to do something, you'll say, well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <Why not? laughs> you know, because you're thinking the option. The other option may be, well, bye. Yeah. So I, when I was asked to do that CPS, it was a raise. And it was to run a, a, a little unit they had created or had been created there. And so I did. And I learned so much. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. It was. And then when I got on the bench and I had those kind of cases, they were, they were familiar to me. I knew right. what to do. And so yeah. that was uh, now, believe it or not, 20 years ago. Because wow. I was a judge for 10 years, mm -hmm. and I became the DA in 2013. Yeah, 10 years this it year, huh? It goes fast. Wow. <laughs> it does, I promise that's, you. That's great. Yes. Um, so that, that sort of shift you saw in the child abuse cases, what do you think brought that on? Do you think it was just kind of like a change in culture in the 90s, or what, what do you think that was? Yeah, I think you've hit on it. I think it's also education uh, that we become more aware. I think mm -hmm. once people realize the child abuse and it just it's so arcane to say this it's not a family matter mm -hmm. I think if you perhaps it's even a little before my times the prosecution of child abuse case in the 70s and 80s probably wasn't prevalent and if kids were abused or outcried um, it, it just it, it didn't happen mm -hmm. if it did those cases were kind of brushed aside I'm assuming I don't know but mm -hmm. I can tell you in my career I had many judges, well-respected, that were uncomfortable with that topic. Um, I think we learned um, that what may seem as inconsistent stories for children, I think that's where you had the blend of psychology with the law to explain to us that it doesn't make a child's outcry about sexual abuse um, inconsistent or not credible because they may say there was a blue pony in the room right. and you go there wasn't a blue pony but you know once we go back and we have the psychologist they help us learn for example that there might have been a wallpaper with a print in the background that they focused on when these horrible things happened yeah. or they put their mind based on a tv show there and then with the collection of information then we were able to bring that education piece into the courtroom. So first we have to open our minds. Right. So we opened our minds that kids are not the best relayers of information, hence that's why they're great victims mm -hmm. for an abuser because, and they're threatened a lot that they're going to 
uh, it's going to ruin their family and those right. threats are real to children or they're going to hurt someone or kill someone or something and children generally can feel like it's their fault um, depending on who the perpetrator is so we have to educate ourselves yeah. before we can educate a jury so yeah. now that we're educated I think I've, well, I've found that juries are very open to believing children and so we have these great partners now the the CAC you know which those acronyms are the Children's Advocacy Center that do the interviews and those forensic interviews now are a tool and the kid doesn't have to repeat the story four times yeah which means that you don't have as many inconsistencies but we still interview them and we don't plug in the interview and play it we ask them separate independently over time after we build rapport so I think yeah. to be concise with the answer is we've educated ourselves and now in turn we can educate juries and I think juries are made up of people like me and you mm -hmm. and when they hear the truth they're able to meet meet the demands of a jury trial and and they hold us to our burden in Kaufman County they do yeah. but we're able to meet our burden and get convictions on these cases yeah which is great because I mean they're they're such different cases than like any other felony oh my. with delayed outcries and just recants and anything you, you can imagine I think they're just I think it is sort and, of and as someone helped me um, we if, if you know we usually ex you know have a, the victim testify but someone reminded me that we do murder cases unfortunately not every day but we have murder cases and we don't have a victim mm -hmm. so if you've got a child abuse case build it like you don't have a victim yeah and when we educate our law enforcement partners they're group guys usually girls and guys mm -hmm. but we say if the if the outcry says I had on an orange shirt look for the orange shirt when you go back with the search warrant to the crime scene I know it sounds simple get the perpetrator's phone they make pictures if we have a suspect at that point because what will happen is we'll be able to get evidence from the shirt and now technology is like I mean it's light years ahead touch yeah. DNA obviously if they leave any other evidence behind. Right. so we just but you have to get over this is a kid this is a hard climb when you have someone that's deceased he's not going to tell you anything so yeah. we still build cases yeah we use the ballistics we use the shell casings we put together a circumstantial case occasionally you'll have direct evidence of someone else that happened to be there or they saw something but if you think about it and so when you put together a child abuse case you put everything else together and then when you have your victim that is the extra so we get ourselves in a position where we think it's so overwhelming. We yeah. do it every, we do it all the time on murder cases. We don't quit doing murder cases because the deceased can't tell us what happened. Yeah. So it's just perspective. Yeah, that's it's, a, it's a good way to think about it. I never really thought about well, it as kind of like build it up as a murder case almost. And yeah, just, then if you have the victim, that's like the icing on the cake. Because and and I know the uh, delayed outcry is a is an issue, but usually when you talk to a victim, there's there's sound reasons. And, and, and what I mean is um, they had to live at home and they might have repressed it even though they knew it happened and it wasn't until they went to college or they left and started working or they were in a group of people that were abused and it was a, a culture within their religion or their family mm -hmm. and once they left and they 
were not adjusting well and started doing therapy, it came out. Well, you know what? That makes sense to reasonable people. Yeah. And I think sometimes as prosecutors, we get caught up in the defense's argument. We don't have to prove all, beyond all doubt. It's a reasonable doubt. What do reasonable people make decisions every day? Right. We, we buy houses. We yeah. buy cars. We don't know. Is that a car a lemon? But is it based upon reason? Yeah. We, we make decisions. Yeah. It's the same thing with criminal. Yeah. It's very true. Yes. So I kind of want to switch over to your time as a judge now. What, what made you want to move from Dallas to Kaufman and become a judge here? Well, I am born and raised in Kaufman County. I guess I was actually born in Dallas, but my parents three days later brought me home. Yeah. And so I've lived here <laughs> my whole life. I would have told you when I was your age, I'm never coming home. I'm gonna live in Dallas and then I'm gonna go somewhere else and you know, shake this country dirt off. <laughs> but it brings you back. Home brings yeah. you back and had two young sons and wanted them to be raised in the same environment I had. And um, 20 years ago when I ran Coffin wasn't near as, uh, as much growth as it is now. Right. But it's still, we have a lot of rural parts and I grew up in Kaufman, so I came back home. And at that time, literally I was approached about running for um, a position in the county. There was a lot of movement. There were people changing, parties were changing, but it, it didn't matter, they were looking for qualified people. Yeah. I was making that drive in Dallas, it wasn't hard. Mm -hmm. I was uh, dropping the kids off at um, a, their daycare, they were, you know, like three and four and then four and five and starting pre-K and kindergarten and then just going over the DA's office. And we did that and when they, when it was asked, honestly, I thought that'd be great, but I've always thought that would be good. I would save me some time, you know, I, I have yeah. more time. I mean, yeah. it, it was just a function of being able to get more time back for myself as well as, wow, a judge. I had, for the most part, great experiences with the judges that I practiced in front of. I admire them. Uh, they're, they're part of your teachers, mm -hmm. particularly when you're a misdemeanor, but even in felony, you can always learn something. Yeah. And so, um, because I had good experience with judges, I respect jurists. Uh, running for judge was, I thought, a great idea. And then when I looked, because I think you should never run or try to do anything that you don't believe in, I looked at the jurisdiction of county court at law and it, like, my resume, as I described earlier, was tailor-made for that position. Mm -hmm. So it was an obvious thing. I'm yeah. like, Lord, this is what I need to do. Yeah. Um, I look back now and I think, you know, dragging these two kids around and running, what was I thinking? You know, what was I thinking? And, um, but I don't know, people thought um, she can do it. And I won, it was very contested. It's, that is a podcast in and of itself. I, <laughs> I took on a, an incumbent and he didn't oh, appreciate wow. it. And that's okay. He, one of the things that you can appreciate um, being a Baylor, soon to be a graduate, and then kind of what Baylor believes in, how I was able, I think, to distinguish myself is that he had a trial backlog and lots of cases backlog. Okay. And I was able to say, which was truthful, I've tried at that time tens of 
jury trials after at, yeah. that was like my 11th to 12 year point in my career. Oh, okay. And I've done all these pleas and had done an appeal and mm-hmm. in the three years he was on the bench, he had done nothing like in comparison. Right. So even though at that time, you can imagine I was, um, I was younger, it was 20 years ago and he was my age now and so he would have seemed to be the seasoned guy with all the experience but i had more experience than he did yeah he'd come out of the military and hmm. i just said i've got more experience you know i and my i believe my motto at the time was experience that matters and so that that trial the the confidence and confidence you get when you're comfortable in a courtroom mm-hmm. Even though I hadn't really was a public speaker or anything, that, but you had presented so many cases because you tried cases in child abuse, and at that time we tried even we even tried a lot of uh, termination cases. That was before mediate settlement agreements. So people that abuse their kids, I did it on the criminal, and then I flipped it to the civil side. That's why they asked me to move. Mm-hmm. So I was able to say, okay, I've had sixty jury trials in ten years, and what have you mm-hmm. done? Oh, nothing. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, and so um, maybe it was a, it was a crazy number. It was a number nobody believed, and then because the way we were trained in Dallas, we kept stats. So if somebody wanted to see him, mm-hmm. you know, or look him up, it was right. like, okay, this girl has got experience. So um, that time, at that time, Kaufman County had one county court law, one district court, and he had a backlog. The first two years, I was rocking and rolling. I think I worked harder then, except for this time in the last couple of years here, mm-hmm. than I had ever mm-hmm. in the DA's office. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, we, I even had the number somewhere. I mean, for Kaufman, Dallas, you have a, a central jury room, so you can grab a panel and try okay. cases. When you have a trial here, we didn't, we don't have a central jury room. So mm-hmm. you have to, through the clerk's office, order your panel and then they don't they don't do panels every day right so it's like monday so sometimes i pick two juries i mean they wow. thought i was nuts because i was <laughs> i was younger and i was i love yeah. this frantic pace and i think the first year here as a judge i think i tried over 30 trials wow. it was crazy yeah that's a lot of trials, a lot of trials yeah. it was a lot of trials and then it tampered down because people were like oh we're not going to work her down i actually lost a court coordinator she i never forget it. she <laughs> told me she goes i'm an old coordinator and you're a young judge sweetie yeah. So, because I had kept her from the other judge, and okay. she really, she it was she had done this, she had done she had done the crazy Dallas scene. She was used to something slower, but we but we tapered down. We got another county court. I had a really good run in there of just having a, a regular amount of trials, which brought, went down to one. Sometimes you wouldn't even get a trial, so mm-hmm. you had about nine to twelve a year, and that was a good pace. Yeah, and probably about. 06 to 08, I was like, okay, I got this. I've gone way up, down. The kids are a little bigger now. Should I say I was a little bored? And I was <laughs> like, hmm, what am I going to do? And I went to a training in 08, one of the judicial training. And they had been doing this in Dallas, but it's the first time I ever heard of a treatment court, alternative treatment Oh, court. yeah. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to bring that to Kaufman. So I created the first in 2008 alternative treatment court. Mm. And because I was a a county court of law, which is 
classically or historically misdemeanor, but I had statutory jurisdiction of everything, I took people that didn't abuse alcohol, but you're looking at people that are addicted and that they have a criminal case. So we're looking at DWI seconds and above. Okay. And we created criteria, we went to training, and it was a phenomenal thing. I never- That's awesome. It was. We saw results. I had, it was the first time we had a treatment team approach. Mm -hmm. um, we actually saw results. I saw people that had, um, they weren't in and out of my court because um, I hadn't, I'd been there about that time Wow, you know, like uh, six years, but they had had a history. And even if they didn't have that many DWIs, they had drug addiction, so we had some co-dependencies. But anyway, I started with probably my first treatment court. Uh, the probation department helped me, the, public, the defense attorneys helped me, and we created um, the treatment court. I, I'm, I was quite proud of that. Yeah. And now in Kaufman, we have county we have uh, at least two other treatment courts. So they've maintained the one I had down in County Court of Law. Um, the district judge at that time, the 422nd, did his mostly on a mental health component okay. with the diagnosis. I think the new judge may just be doing drugs. I don't know. So we have that one. And then we are part of a regional treatment court for veterans. And so uh, I believe that's all of them. My office right. now sits on those committees. Uh, the part of the teams, but I did that and I brought that to Kaufman. And I, yeah. I mean, I don't take total credit. I mean, it's been going all, all over, but when I went to, you know how you're sitting somewhere and you're like, the, your radar goes up and you're like, we need that here. Yeah. And so that was really good for us in 08. Um, I, we were with the two courts and then we had two district courts. So around 08, 09, after the treatment, I, I wasn't looking for anything. I think. I mean, honestly, at that point in my career, I think the 86th district judge was older. It's not mm -hmm. the gentleman that's here now. It's not the judge that's here now. And probably in my mind, I was gonna, when he resigned, run for that bench. I mean, I had, I yeah. had, I wasn't even thinking about the DA. Right. I was like, what else can I do to make this better? What else can we do? I mean, what else can we bring? What dynamic can we be? We were working a lot with the juvenile justice there. We were just starting to see a slight uptick mm -hmm. in some juvenile crime in about 10, 12, and then in uh, 2013, things changed. Yeah, which is a good lead-in, I guess, to that that sort of uh, time period, um, because unfortunately, it is a part of Kaufman's history yeah. and and your history, because you were you were around here. So um, I know you you wrote a book on it, and um, I've got the chance to read some of it and seen some of the documentaries and stuff. But um, I think coming from your perspective, I don't know how many folks at Baylor know about it or what happened. Um, so if you wouldn't mind kind of retelling some of the story of what happened there. Sure. Um, I'll tell it as a narrative first and then I'll kind of summarize it because I'll tell it from my perspective. Yeah. Um, in 2013, I was on the bench, I was a judge, and we were, of course, we're at the old courthouse. And as old courthouses go, you still have windows at your courtroom right. so you can look out and we heard shots ring out in the morning. Um, I don't know why sometimes when you hear shots ring out, you think it's something else. You think that wasn't a gunshot, but it yeah. was. And later we found out that across the street and in the parking lot where everyone parked, 
but more importantly, where Mark Hassey parked every day by 840. He was one of the felony chiefs, or there were only three, I think, at that time, including Mike, um, was parking and got out and was killed, I would say assassin style, because it was, um, he was shot in the head area. People that were there, it's interesting, you have eyewitnesses, but it, no one was able to really identify, I'm gonna call him the assailant, it, but we later know it's because he was covered with a mask similar to what you would think is a ninja or an assassin's mask. He had a mask, mm -hmm. he had a black hood on, he had a black hoodie on, mm -hmm. and dark gloves. And he shot him with a handgun and killed him. But before, people all that were able to recount what saw was that there was an exchange, which right. made people think that they knew each other. He got in his car and he sped away. Didn't know if there were one or two people and gone. Mm -hmm. um, I will say I was in a jury trial. It was chaotic when we understood what yeah. was happening. I remember my bailiff, um, we were just talking before the gunshots rang out about what the day was like. It was a CPS trial. It was complicated if there was two or three dads, three children that go with it. And oh, I had like a, yeah. a chart on my bench so I could know the name <laughs> of the parent and the party and the respondent and the, mm -hmm. and the intervening grandparents. And it was, I had seven people at least in my court that represented people it seemed. And of course you had the guardian at Lydon and the attorney at Lydon for the children. And so when the bailiff left because it was all hands on deck with law enforcement, I remember thinking, I've got to go tell my jury something. And that's the only time that I've ever spoken to a jury that I shouldn't have, but I was the judge, so I couldn't send anybody else in there. And I, yeah. I went in and I said, we've had an incident. And by then they knew, I could tell on their faces, they were on their phones, they knew. And I'll let you know what we're gonna do. And I just shut the door because I didn't know what I was gonna do. Yeah. And so that's what happened that day. Um, I don't know. The, I, it, it, you look back now, and it was really surreal when you, you, if you take yourself back to that moment, because most of the time I can tell that story, and it's like, yeah, that happened. But when you really are in a moment where someone you know that you walk around with that you right. see is actually killed, and you know him and you don't know who the, the shooter was and it's like somewhere you can see and you know it takes you aback yeah. that's mild uh it, it's, yeah. it scares the heck out of you so um we all packed it up after we were, we were locked into the courthouse for a minute not literally but to secure the courthouse because they could handle the scene outside and right. and then when we wrapped I'll never forget those poor jurors were walked out by somebody I wasn't me to their cars you know past yellow tape blood on the blood on the parking lot right. the craziest thing is those folks when we called them I was gonna have a mistrial I presumed all wanted to come back and finish their civic duty not wow. one of them worked 
I mean, I, I can't believe it. Yeah. To this day, I would have said, uh, I think I might come to Coffin County yeah. Courthouse. But that lets you know, again, to me, um, you know, we say in, when we uh, board our juries, we'd say, you know, your government asks very little of you. Some, some we don't have a draft anymore, mm-hmm. but we do ask you to participate in our government, and right. that's why you get the jury signs. You know, something like yeah. that. We've, we've learned to say that. Yeah. And my goodness, they, they took that so to heart. And so I always cool. felt about those folks, wow. Like, I probably had an alternate. I didn't have to use the alternate. Mm-hmm. Because the, the reason why I had was never important. But anyway, they came back. And uh, after being off two days, that was on a Thursday. We were off Thursday, Friday. We came back on Monday. My jurors all came back. Neither side asked for a mistrial. And before we started that trial at 9, at 8.45, the then DA, Mike McClellan, had a tribute, raised the flag to half mass in my jurors, and everybody else's staff was outside. Hmm. Very poignant. Yeah. And we finished our business, and then probably for the next um, month to five weeks, it was crazy chaotic. People were uh, following every lead. Mm-hmm. Like the book is written from my perspective because it's not about the factual things that the attorneys that were involved in the case, I was still on the bench. Um, and what, what I found in that is that it, because I was still looking at it from the vantage point of being on the bench is, you know, I, so I wasn't interviewed or talked to because I didn't, I didn't know anything, right? Mm-hmm. So I was on the outside looking in thinking, oh my God, Mark, his mother, and then heard all the stories because he was a single guy but he took care of his mother so all those things were very sad but like everything with tragedy death loss Mm -hmm. you go on your life yeah and I distinctly remember that year in spring break which was we come around March we had taken my husband and I had taken the kids skiing and I remember we were skiing and I said to Aaron I guess they're not going to catch anybody I guess it was just some weirdo came through town and killed Mark. It doesn't make sense. Because yeah. it was the Mexican cartel. Right. It was the Aryan Brotherhood. Let's go through all of his files. Maybe it's some all of his files. Dallas, he was a prolific prosecutor, so there was tons of files. He, somebody that just got out of prison wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. So all these theories, but there was no suspect. Hmm. And so we got back to normal. Yeah. And it was the Easter weekend which I think Easter fell on April Fool, so it's like the 31st of March, uh, Saturday. So it was the eve of Easter. Uh, I was at a party. It's beautiful in Texas. You know, spring and fall is kind of our best season. Summer's yeah. too hot and winter's crazy. You never know what you're going to get. Sunshine, rain, snow. Speaking of the crazy one. <laughs> crazy, right? Yeah. And so um, it was just beautiful. And uh, my phone, um, I should have always kept it with me, but I do now. But I didn't have mine. It was in my purse because somebody might have been looking for me for a search warrant. Or I didn't have it. But my husband's phone rang, and it was my court coordinator at the time. So my husband said, this isn't for me. It's got to be for you. It's Katie. She's just looking for you. So somebody's looking for something mm-hmm. to find you for a search warrant probably. Something like that, he said. And he yeah. slid the phone over and handed it to me. And I, I, I just remember about that 
probably realistically first five or six seconds I didn't understand the thing she said I won't say she was hysterical but she's crying so hard I, I couldn't understand her and I thought oh my god someone died mm -hmm. maybe it was her stepdad I remember he had had a health condition and I thought she's calling to tell me Jerry's passed yeah. away something I, I couldn't think of what it was because my mind was not thinking somebody got shot and I remember the the anxiety and then when I she finally said it was like a little role reversal she said to me where are you <laughs> I thought I'm the boss but I said well I'm at a party because we're, we're looking for you and she said Mike and Cynthia were killed and we're looking for you and I remember I was standing outside still had a beautiful backyard the pool and I went mm -hmm. and I was standing somewhere and I went Mike and Cynthia were killed and I was standing there and then everybody that was in the semicircle like gasped yeah. And I remember kind of sitting down on like a patio stool or chair. And and then she said, well, I just got to tell them that you're fine. You're fine. We were worried about you. We couldn't find you. I said, I am fine. I'm fine. Yeah. And then I would say if it was crazy when Mark was killed, when Mike and his wife were killed, it, that's a whole nother level of disbelief. And then at that point, there obviously was a connection with Coffin County DA's office, but also county officials. Mm -hmm. And we all went on high alert. I had a security detail on my house, and so did oh. a lot of other people. Um, and they set up a command post at what is now our 911 center. Then it was uh, the old armories, which they've renovated oh, for. Uh, it's a got a good use and purpose and so they they did and later we found out that it was Eric Williams who was mm -hmm. an elected official justice of the peace uh, former um, um, a, a, a attorney as an attorney right. did work in the courts um, a vendetta because he had stolen some equipment and mm -hmm. he killed him because they prosecuted him occasionally people will say to me which irritates me I think they over-prosecuted him for that, as if it's, and then they'll go, well, that's not a reason to kill anybody, but I just, I think they over-prosecuted him on a theft case. And what people don't know, it was a felony theft, it was computer equipment, they had him on a videotape, and you know because, you already know this because you know enough about criminal law that people don't know, is that there was a negotiation, there was a plea offer, mm -hmm. and I, because it's not my story to tell. It was a good plea offer. But a person like that didn't want a plea. He wanted to take it to a jury. He wanted an apology. He wanted the right. case dismissed. And they weren't going to dismiss it. Yeah. And that was their, I guess, crucial mistake when dealing with a sociopath, psychopath. But when they just recently aired that on Dateline, mm -hmm. and believe it or not, I got a couple of calls like that. Wow. And what I do is just say, well, I appreciate your opinion. Thank you. Yeah. I'm very busy. Click, which is not my usual. I'm usually nicer yeah. and can, you know, accuse of anything that's being verbose, but I'm not going to tolerate that conversation. Um, there's no excuse, and you don't know enough, and we're not going to discuss it on a television show, and nor if they did. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you... And coming sort of from a prosecutor's perspective, he's he's stealing from the county, which is stealing from the people of Kaufman, because the people of Kaufman are the ones that are 
paying, paying for all this. And he's in a trusted position because he's a yeah. justice of the people. Yeah. And it, and if you could see the video, which it's probably online somewhere, of him walking out with boxes of equipment, his mm -hmm. he had a theory that he was going to put this together at home and bring it back. Well, I'll just tell you, if I have then, if I have if I want a county computer, I've got to requisition it, tag it, mm -hmm. and then they come set it up. So yeah. it was ludicrous. Um, and the reason that for me, my story was a target on my back because at the time I didn't. I wasn't 100% sure. I found out after I was appointed, but uh, I didn't resign after I found out that he had a hit list and I was on it. And without belaboring the story, when I was a judge, uh, when he did work for the county, we learned that um, he overbilled the county. Mm. And I uh, let him know that. I did mm. make a referral to the DA's office. I often wonder when we do threat assessments was that something I should have done? Should I refer yeah. that case? Yeah. You know, but I didn't. And um, I thought a good chastisement from the judge that I can show where you're overbilling would stop that. And he wasn't alone. There was a couple other folks doing that. And um, he resented that and quit taking the court appointments, much to his um, failure in his practice, which led him to running. <laughs> and so in 13, that obviously created a vacancy. The governor appointed me, and I became a DA in 2013 under those circumstances. You know, I've had people at that time, literally at that time, I had people thinking I was a hero, or a heroine, I guess, to, are you crazy? <laughs> I've had both. Yeah. You know, but honestly, people always ask me, why did you want to do that? And I could only say, I was so mad. I mean, we didn't know it was Eric yeah. Williams. I was so mad that somebody came in here, killed two people, and you could literally see the fear at people at the grocery store. People yeah. were fearful, and it just bugged me so much. I thought, you know what? I was a prosecutor for 12 years. I've been on the bench for 10, <laughs> but I can go back to being a prosecutor. I yeah. mean, it's the craziest. I mean, I never thought anything else, but this makes me furious. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's a good reason to take over. and. Take, yeah, take, it, I guess. Take it, the wheel, I guess. It, it, well, it, 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 people ask me that. People ask me, like, and you did yeah. that because you were tired of being on the bench? I was like, you don't know. I, was, I had done a lot of things on the bench and probably was going to seek a higher position on a bench. But when that murder happened and I saw people, I realized I've got a lot of experience in a DA's office in a big county. I can yeah. bring it here. We're growing. I yeah. can do this. It totally changed my trajectory of what I was going to do. Yeah. It wasn't in my plans. And I can only tell you the feeling I had, you know, and after talking a big game of being mad, I think after I got the appointment and people kept asking me, was I crazy? I did get a little scared. I told myself, I said, am I being stupid? And I, you know, the man was like, well, no, but, um, you know, we need to be careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we were good. We had Homelands, and they were amazing. Totally professional. Yeah. Put together um, a security detail, and that was real. They were they were real. They took it seriously. And then at the end, there was a 21-day stint. About after the, first, after the second week, we got the suspect, Eric Wood, in custody. Okay. Again, that's a whole other story. Yeah. And then it, I would say, if you want to be poignant, 
I would say that murder had a pivot and a change of innocence in Kaufman. I'm not saying that there was just tons and tons of crime, but I think with the growth of people moving, we've just, we've just, we're a busier, different community. Yeah, yeah Dallas keeps growing outward. That's right. They are. <laughs> yes, sir. The more, the more people there are, the more crime there is, I guess. It is, and it's a correlation. I mean, a natural correlation, right? It's a yeah. percentage. And and still, when I tell people, they say, there's 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 crime in Kaufman County. I'm like, percentage-wise, it's actually flat to down because mm-hmm. you got more people. Right. But you've got more incidences of yeah. crime. You just do. And so we're just trying to keep up with it. Um, the most recent thing we've done, and, and you do things all the time. We talked before the podcast, specialize in the child abuse unit. Mm-hmm specializing family violence, domestic violence, inner partner violence, getting prosecutors, pulling those cases out yeah, because they can get looked over, which leaves your major crimes back in your felony courts. We still have the misdemeanor. We have an appellate person. We spend a lot of time with the civil and uh, county court because I, okay. I have jurisdiction as the criminal district attorney. Right. So we have to represent our county commissioners and government. And it's, it's a robust busy practice yeah and a lot of management of uh, staff training lawyers how to be prosecutors um but i found that this job is has picked up it kind of reminded me as i told you at the beginning i probably haven't worked this hard since when i first took over county court at law because it is coming fast and it's coming it's coming yeah you can feel it yeah which is good. I mean, Grown County is always fun, but it, it, it can, you gotta meet the can be worrisome. It can be. <laughs> yeah. uh, the latest thing we did, I think, because of some of the issues we've had with kids, young people, the the 13 to 21-year-old predators, we started a street crimes unit in conjunction with the Texas anti-gang, the TAG, oh, okay. the state. Been very great, good partners mm-hmm. for us. Um, they're housed over in... Um, North Wichita Hills, but they are including us in, in that. So a big mm-hmm. stretch, but they're including us. I think they have another tag in um, Tyler in East Texas. So okay. we're, we're kind of right in between. And we're cultivating this unit to really deal with stolen cars, mm-hmm. guns. These kids are stealing, using yeah. gangs, but really, too, it's the drugs. The fentanyl's killing kids. Yeah. Um, meth is everywhere. Meth is everywhere. But yeah. in using meth, people will get hold of the fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And we're getting overdoses, I think unintentional deaths. And we're really working on connecting evidence to the people that are supplying this. And yeah. that's what we're really working on now. And I've spent a lot of attention with the street crimes unit. We changed the name from gang or a fentanyl task force to something broader because yeah. we're seeing that it's violence, drugs, you know, um, we're, we're seeing the whole component come right. out of there. Stolen yeah. property. It's so crazy to see like the young kids getting into all this. And I'm like, when I was their age, I was in high school or playing baseball or something Absolutely. like that and not dealing drugs on the streets. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about the whole culture with yeah. parenting and stuff, but I do find I had to remember the culture is important, 
that we're losing the culture war in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But for me in the DA hat, to be honest, my philosophy is just not here. Yeah. Just not here. And if I could, uh, if I was on a bigger platform, it would be just not in Texas. Right. Because I can't fix everything, but anything you have control over, a dominion over, we ju we're just going to keep working on it until we push it out. So for the violent offenders, I want the jury to give them as much time as they can. Yeah. For people that have drug issues, I'm all for pretrial diversion. I'm all for, um, if that's the first time, if they're a good candidate, if they repeatedly use, we can work with them in a treatment court. But if you hurt somebody or hurt a child or you are stealing over and over again, no, we're done. Yeah. We're done. I'm, I'm, and, I, you know, we have the burden of proving that. I don't reject that burden, but my philosophy with my prosecutor is we we have to hold the line and we're going to hold the line on people that um, stop law-abiding citizens from enjoying their rights as citizens yep. and you cannot enjoy constitutional rights that our creators given us if you're not safe yeah it won't work i don't care what people say i i can't imagine with all respect to my colleagues, saying it's okay to sell $700 or $500 or $1,000 worth of merchandise. I, I, mm -hmm. I think you set the bar so low. I respect every human being, and I think that by respecting other people, that they need to understand what the rules are. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't know what they are, and you don't want to open a law book, just pick up the Ten Commandments. It'll guide you all the way through. Yeah. Not hard. Yeah, it's important for all those. I mean, even like the little, the sort of petty theft crimes that you get at Walmart or something, it's it still can lead to bigger things. And I mean, everything's important. Think about it. If, you, if you'll steal something petty and then somebody stops you from that, then you may go into a store and steal something. And when the store owner asks you about it and you're not familiar, you could shoot him. Yeah. It happens. I've seen that. Yeah. So... I'm not blaming any other county or any other policies for that. I'm just saying it won't work here. Right. Which is why your office is so well-respected <laughs> among, like, Baylor. I mean, they, everybody at Baylor talks very highly of your office, Professor oh, Alpert nice. and Beth Tobin and all I of them. I love Beth. Love your professors. I just, hey. it, you know what, though? We have so much work to do, and we have not got it right. We are practicing law. Mm -hmm. and we're practicing prosecutors, and I am always open to other suggestions. Uh, you know, I'm always looking, how do, if there's anything that drives me, it's how do I keep this county safe? How do, yeah. what can we do to make it safer? I mean, because we don't win every time, you know? Right. So what are we doing wrong? What, what can we, can we do better? Yeah. What, what, I think about, those are the things, the sentences people get don't keep me up. What keeps me up is what we can do next. What can we do to improve? How can I make you, if you're working in this office, the best prosecutor? Mm -hmm. Even if you leave here. Because yeah. if they say you're from Kaufman and you're not giving them investments, it's making me look bad. Right. So I want people to be the best at what we do is be as fair as we can and continue to seek justice. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, sort of as we wrap up here, um, what sort of advice do you have for law students that want to go into prosecution or 
um, are interested in criminal law, whether that be defense or prosecution. Um, what's your sort of advice to them? That's a, it's a, that's a great question, and I think it's important for those that have a bend. Mine is obviously prosecution. I've never, I, I think for a minute, I, but between waiting on the job at the DA's office, uh, once I had to tell the other firm that I wasn't going to work with them, um, I hung around with a couple of people from law school that were doing some defense work. So whatever your passion is, follow it. Mm-hmm. It's not always the money, because when you're good at something, you will excel at it, and you'll yeah. get to the top of your game. Um, I would tell people that want to pursue criminal law, it's the most important area of law you can practice in. I mean, obviously, children is vital. You yeah. know, you're talking about our future and what happens with them. Civil law and being able to enjoy and exercise your property interests is important. But criminal law is obviously at the heart of our Bill of Rights and your rights. So good practitioners in that area is important. Yeah. So I would tell a young attorney that's interested don't be dissuaded because there's not a lot of money in it. Uh, we're going to take care of you. We're going to take care of your student loans if you mm-hmm. make it your business to do this for 10 years. Follow your heart. Understand that prosecution is an area of law that will serve you well throughout your career. Because if you decide to do something later and you're a prosecutor in an office that tries cases, you can learn other areas of law, yeah. but you'll never try as many cases and do the kind of work you do as a prosecutor. And you can take that skill set and apply it to anything else as a federal prosecutor or if you decide to pivot and do other law. And once you're comfortable in a courtroom, you can go anywhere with that. Yeah. Just so such a great part of criminal prosecution is that you it just is. you're in a courtroom all the time. It's it's your office almost. It it's is really cool. It is. And when when I was a judge, it didn't happen all the time. But I tell people, let's say I know it's corny, but when I had a good prosecutor, heck, even if it wasn't prosecution, but that's what you tried a lot of, that it wasn't a criminal case, and you had a good advocate. A respondent attorney, the defense attorney, and they were putting on their evidence and they were skilled. Mm-hmm. And you had the reporter, and I could look off the bench and see my reporter, and I had a male reporter, his eyes would be half closed, and they would be a listening testimony, and the jury would be at the edge of their chair listening. For me, it was like music, it was yeah. like a symphony because there was a rhythm to it. If someone even objected, I knew the ruling, and for a minute, we were doing justice. You could feel it. Yeah. I didn't know the outcome, right? Because the jury was when the jury's listening intently, and you had good advocates, and I could just rule. It was it was something that you, as a judge, you were like, we're all in a zone right now. Yeah, you're a baseball player. It's like you you see that ball actually coming. You know, every once in a while you could play baseball, and, and they go fast. I mean, when that ball's coming, it's fast. But when you yeah. could actually, you're in one of those days when you're in a zone like that, and you that bat just makes contact, mm-hmm. it's so sweet, that sound. Yeah. Okay. So every once in a while you're in a jury, and, you know, it's nothing wrong with being young and inexperienced and it's herky and it's jerky, but you get right. to that, those lawyers three, four years, and everybody knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. and the jury's listening. Nobody's napping because as a judge, you're sitting there, they're all awake. 
you know, and, you're, and they're not talking about the court reporter, and you're like, this is good. This is good. Yeah. We're doing good cool. today. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, young attorneys, because you're already in law school, you're going to be an attorney. Stick to your dreams. You're going to be just fine. Yeah. We're all learning. We're all still practicing law. That's what we do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And um, thank you to all of our listeners for uh, tuning in. And this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. And we will catch you next time.